Dr. Ken Walker, first, as we're getting started, I'd like to thank you for that tour. That tour was really, really good. What mostly opened my eyes about it was the, the diversity of species mm. of just every insect. And even the story you had with that, um, was it the stick? The mm. stick insect that's got, that's almost went extinct from the rats? Yes, yeah, the Lord Howe Island stick insect. Yeah, yeah, yeah fa- fascinating. I mean, you know, there are more, what is it? The stats, one in every four animals in the world is an insect. Yeah. And one of one in every five is a beetle. So, you know, I mean, there's an enormous number of beetles in the world and that. Mm. So, so insects are one of the success stories of nature, I guess you'd say. But the diversity is out there. Um, I gave you a statistic also, which is quite frightening, that we only know about 30% of our insect species in, in Australia. 70% we don't know. So what are we missing? What's becoming extinct before we even know it exists and that? So yeah, there's a lot to learn. The whole extinction of species, I had that conversation obviously yesterday with the paleontologist I was talking to you about. Uh, very recently, one of the rhino species went extinct. And yes. uh, before we could um, even do anything about it, before we even had the will to do anything about it, it just went extinct. And it does make me wonder if sometimes humans actually do care ab- about the extinction of, of species or if we're just sort of putting ourselves ahead of, you know, the insect life and animal life, but we have more of a negative effect on nature than they do. Like all they want to do is prosper nature, especially the bees, which is my group. Yeah. Your group. (laughs) First of all, how did you get started in entomology? Like what drove you towards it? It's interesting. Um, I go right back to before I could walk even, um, my both my parents were birdos. Um, you know, they they were amateur birdos. Mm. And my mum talks about um, when I was a child having me in the in the sack in front of her. And we were going out. We lived in Queensland, and uh, and they would go out on birdo trips. And then as I got older, we go on birdo trips and that. So I was always very much loved being out in nature and and enjoying it. I didn't have a fascination for insects uh, when I when I first started. I went to university and. And, and I decided I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to be a dentist. I didn't want to work in those kind of areas. So I did a, a Bachelor of Agricultural Science degree. And, and that introduced me to a wide range of science, physics, chemistry, and entomology. Mm. And indeed, I can still remember, <clears throat> I, I, did an, I had to do an essay on the two-spotted mite. Uh, it's called Tetranicus. Uh, you, you, uh, Tetranicus is its name. And for some reason, it was like a light bulb went on to me, and uh, and I thought I found that really interesting. I found it fascinating, and so I then gravitated to more of the entomology subjects. And fifty years later, I'm still <laughs> fascinated by insects. So I, I can take it back to that essay that it was it was the essay that that got me interested. It was the biology. I found. One of the things that I find fascinating about working with insects, you can see there's a microscope on my desk here. Yes. I work in a world that most people don't see. Mm. So you look at an insect and you don't see hairs, you don't see individual eye, uh, called omatidia, you don't see a cellar, you don't see legs, you don't see abdomens. Whereas under the microscope, I go into this wonderful world of fascination where I see colors, I see structures, I see things I've never seen before. I'm probably the first person to see many of the things that I see. So I'm very privileged, I think, to work in the world of the microscope. And perhaps that's also the attraction with insects that I work on relatively small insects and I enjoy the challenge of finding out 
uh, all their details through all the microscope, electron microscopes as well. You might have heard of those. Mm. That was, you know, we had high, and more recently we are doing a thing called montage photography. What's that? Um, under the microscope, uh, there's a very shallow depth of field. So if I put a camera on my microscope and take a photograph, I'll only get a very small part of it in, in focus and the rest is all out of focus. And that's why if you're looking under a microscope, you have to rack up and down the whole time because it's got this very shallow depth of field. And that was a real barrier for photography. However, some very smart people oh, about mm, almost 20 years ago now said, okay, let's make it an advantage. So they put a camera on and let's think about that. I often use the analogy of an orange. So imagine you've got an orange and you slice that orange into a hundred different slices. Each slice has got a, a single little focal frame around it. and But the hundred have got all the individual but broken up focal planes. And that's what we do under the microscope. So I start at the top of the focal plane and I take a photograph of the insect and then I move down a little bit, take another photograph, move down a little bit, take it down and move down. So I take about a hundred photographs through all of the focal planes of the insect. Each photo has some pixels in focus and most of the pixels not in focus. And then there's this magic piece of software called montage photography and it grabs each of those photos and it takes just the pixels in focus, throws out all the pixels that are out of focus and creates a single new image with just the in-focus pixels. So it's called montage photography, and it's changed the way that we, 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 we take photographs of insects now. We can get these full 3D, high magnification photographs in great detail through montage photography. So it's fantastic. Is each, photo uh, each photograph telling you something different about the insect? Uh, no, no, each photograph has got only a little bit of information, the little bit that's in focus, the rest of it's out of focus. Mm -hmm. So as I said, um, you've just, in each photo, there's only a little bit of useful information, but the final image that you do has got all the bits of useful information put into a new single image and it throws away all the non-useful information. So as I said, it's changed the way we use microscopes. Previously, to get a 3D image, we'd have to use a scanning electron microscope, which costs about a million dollars to use. Um, I can use my, my, my microscope here, which costs about $2,000, <laughs> and put a microscope, and as long as I just stage it down and get a whole lot of little photographs through the focal plane, I can get a 3D image, which is fantastic. Mm. Now, you showed me before your discovering new bee, new bee species. A lot of people, when yeah. they look at bees, especially the general public, they just look at a bee as a bee. Yeah. Can we start from now there's a bee I told you about earlier, which was the, uh, what was it? The sweat bee. Sweat bee. bee. The sweat, sweat bee, which is yeah. kind of yeah. your bread and butter. Yes, it bit. is. It is. What are we looking for when we're naming different types of bee species? Is it little, is it little differences on the hair? Is it little differences well, it is, on yeah. the color? <clears throat> is it? There are two, there are two uh, I'm a taxonomist, mm. so I describe and name you animals. There are two types of taxonomists. One is called a morphological taxonomist, so I look at morphological characteristics on the outside of the body. Mm. And the other one is using DNA, and they're more molecular taxonomists, so they're looking at the genome and things like that. I'm old school, so I was taught morphological taxonomy, so yes, I do look 
at the number of hairs, the shape. I look at the wing venations. I look at the color. There's a whole lot of variations within each species that I can describe, which then put a map around what that species occurs. It's interesting. I need more than one specimen to do that uh, because I need to know what's called the intraspecific variation. Uh, I gave the example of humans. We're one species, Homo sapiens, but we all look quite different. So we are one species. So not every individual is a different species, Mm. but we know what the variation within Homo sapiens is to be able to say it's a single species. And so that's exactly what I do. So I describe the morphology of the animal, in this case a bee, and then I pass on that information in keys and written descriptions so that other people can make identifications of the bees that I look at and name and put that name on the animal. One of the great reasons for putting names on animals Actually, there's two. Uh, one of the great reasons is that there's a great saying that humans only really under, uh, appreciate what we understand. And so if we don't know anything about it, then we have little appreciation for it. But then also, once I put a name on an animal, it's like a hook. And other people who work on that animal, because there's a single name for it, they can then add bits of information to the original hook that I made. So I give it a name. And then someone goes along and says, oh, I found it on this flower. There's another bit of information. I found it in this location. There's another bit of information. And, and so there's all these individual little pieces of information can be aggregated onto the name, the single name that I give it. And it begins to build a picture up hmm. of the animal. For example, if I have a bee species and I have one specimen, I know, people, I'll go back a little bit. People often say to me, um, why do you have so many specimens of insects in a collection, right? <laughs> and, and and we've got in insects two, two, two and a half million Because you're an entomologist. Because I'm an entomologist, exactly in that. And so I often show them a distribution map. And, and I say, for example, I've got 100 dots on a map. And they're all the different individual locations where bees have been found, this bee has been found. And there's ones from Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, and across the South Australia and Tasmania. So I say, okay, if I take the Queensland specimen as the only specimen I'm going to have, and I throw the rest away, what information have I lost? I, I only know that it occurs in Queensland. And if I'm asked, where else does it occur? Well, I don't know. I, I don't have any more dots. Um, it was found on this plant. What other plants was it visit? Well, I don't know. I've only got one specimen. So by having a single specimen, we have such limited information, whereas if we have multiple specimens, we're able to look at the distribution. Where else does it occur than Queensland? And as we know, it occurs in New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia. I know a whole range of plants it does. So multiple specimens gives us a much better image and holistic view of the species as compared to a single specimen. And that's why museums have got millions of specimens because we need millions of specimens to be able to fill in all these gaps that we don't know about the species. And as you were saying before, they only really show 1% out the front. They do, exactly, exactly in that. So, yeah, very much so. So more is better when it comes to biology and biodiversity, Mm. importantly. So it's terrible. Um, We just don't know what we're losing. Um, You know, unless we can describe species so that other people can aggregate information, 
there's this complete deficit of knowledge of what's out there. So I, I gave the, uh, I give the crazy example of I've got an insect and it's and I found the cure for cancer. Uh, and Thomas says, "Great, what's the insect?" Well, he hasn't got a name. Where else do I find it? Well, I don't know. I've only got one specimen. Uh, you know, what, what what flowers did it go to? Well, I don't know. I've only got one specimen on that. So this lack of information, you've got this discovery, but this lack of information doesn't allow you to pass on that information and for other people to begin working with that information. Mm. When we're trying to differentiate a species, do we also look at behavior of the species as well? So like just say you've got the species of bees, each bee species will just say, you'll have a species like the honeybee, they were mainly, yep. like they're, they're the worker bees, yes. then you've got the pollinator bees, then you also got the bees, I've heard there are bees out there that don't even have stingers. There are, there are, yeah, yeah. Uh, we have, um, there's about 1,600 species of bees in Australia and there's 11 stingless bees. Um, they occur from about Sydney all the way up to um, North Queensland and across to about Broome. Mm. So there are 11 species in Australia uh, that are stingless bees and they just don't have a sting. Um, they, um, they, they bite, they're very small little bees in that, but, but they bite rather than sting. So, so yeah, there are stingless bees without mm. a doubt in that. But yeah, we, we, we know so much. I was gonna go back to your question about um, do I use behavior? And the answer is no, because I have dead bees here. So I <laughs> have- they don't really. They don't, they don't go around. They don't behave. Exactly. I mean, I've been out in the field and I've collected them and, and I've found what plants they're on on that. However, once I put a name on a species, then there's a wealth of other people out there who will then go out and find the biology of the living animal. Mm. And then that's, remember that hook? They'll add more and more information. So nesting behavior, for example, is a whole field of information out there that people go into. Another field that particularly in the sweat bees that people love is sociality. So within the sweat bees and it's called the family helictidae, they go all the way from solitary right up to sociality, complete social species. So there's this enormous grade of sociality within one family or one group of bees. And there are people who spend their life uh, working on the social aspects of insects and that. However, if you don't have the name of the animal that you're speaking about, you can't communicate what you've found. Mm. And so I begin, so in a way, I create the language that people use to be able to communicate what they found about them. So I work with a dead animal. I mean, museums are morgues. That's mm. basically are just a big morgue. <laughs> uh, and, and my job is to be the voice mm. for those insects there. And I work on the taxonomy or the morphological characteristics. And also we pull legs off insects and we do DNA. That's that's where you get it from, and mm. that from, from legs or, or wings and things like that. So we have all the aspects there to do taxonomy and put names on it. And then other people will take that name and go and do sociology and behavior and floral aspects and things like that, adding more information to the hook, which is the name. Mm. What causes an insect like a bee to migrate? So you obviously have... Um these bees down sort of Victoria way, but then you have bees on the other side, even though they're cousins, they did migrate at once. Yes. At one time. What do we understand what may cause bees and insects to migrate? Well, I'll take you back to the to the re the reason for an adult insect is twofold, is one to mate, reproduce, uh, you uh, give, give new offspring but importantly, to find new sources of food, mm. to find new distribution points. So if an animal was to stay within its locale and not move out, it would soon wipe out its own food source. 
or if conditions change and its food source can no longer survive, then the whole species goes. So the idea that a species moves and migrates into new areas is ensuring that it's, it, it continues, even if it changes, if conditions change where it originally was. And so when we talk, look about Australia, for example, across from Victoria to southwest Western Australia, as Australia broke off from Gondwana and drifted north during the Cretaceous, Cretaceous, we went through a whole range of wetting and drying periods. So there would have been a nice wet, almost forest across from Victoria to southwest Western Australia. And then as it dried out, then across the Nullarbor, it dried out and those forests disappeared. And yet the animal, when it was all wet, would have been able to disperse all the way across the Nullarbor. And then when it dries out, you finish up with two isolated populations. And, and, and that is the, that's the beauty of, of evolution. When you split a population into two different types, if you give it enough time, a million plus years, then usually one of them will change. And so the original species no longer can mate and reproduce with each other. So for example, if I was to have species in Victoria that dispersed all the way across to southwest Western Australia, and then after a million years of separation, we brought specimens from that southwest Western Australia back into Victoria, they wouldn't be able to mate and reproduce because they had changed mm. over that time period. So the reason they have dispersal is to find new food sources, basically, um, because if you don't go and find new places where you can where you can live, then if the where you were changes, you're gone. Do you think that would be, do you think that's becoming harder for them to find food sources today with the amount of uh, deforesting we've been doing? Corridors, you've heard the word of having forestry corridors, they're very popular. Um, even even on the sides of roads, when you drive along, if you look if you look past the side of a road, you'd often see huge amounts of agriculture and, 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 uh, and, and where they've actually wiped out the habitat there. But often along the sides of the road, the original habitat are there. So it's important to have these corridors where animals can move to new areas. If you split and break that corridor, then there's a basically an isolation and they can't move into new areas. So yeah, um, we have changed the environment so much. And if you split populations or you split habitats, then there's major problems. Because I'm imagining bees migrating for the purpose of that deforesting, yep. trying to look for new food, but then perhaps where they go, there's also deforesting happening there. Yep. So, there's only so far a bee could really travel. There is, and and this within, I mean, uh, bees bees travel less than a kilometre, mm. probably even 500 metres. They're not like birds. They're not like birds. So you're talking about multiple generations it takes to be able to disperse and find new food sources and that. Uh, so it's a slow process, but as I said, if there's a barrier where they can't get across that, you know, that large agricultural land, then everything stops. And how much of our food sources actually come from the pollination of bees? That's a great question. There's a there's a saying which has got a fair bit of science behind it that one in every three mouthfuls of food is a direct result of pollination. Wow. Not just bees. I mean, you know, birds pollinate, butterflies pollinate, um, beetles, there's a whole lot of animals that do it. Bees are the main source, mm. but one in every three mouthfuls of food. Now, it's only one in every three because a lot of the food we eat, like bread, for example, are made from grasses, and grasses are wind-pollinated, mm. not, not bee-pollinated. So 
um, I imagine one in every three mouthfuls of food we eat is, is a result of pollination in, in some form in that. We estimate, for example, with just the European honeybee, which was brought into Australia in 1822 and pollinates a lot of our crops, each year it's worth $16 billion worth of pollination from just that one bee. And then if we add all of the native bees, plus the bats and the birds and the butterflies and that, there's another $16 billion worth of pollination each year. So there's $32 billion worth of agriculture reliant on pollination. Not just bees, but as I said, pollination and bees are the main pollinators there. So they play an extremely important role, which begs the question, what if they disappear? We've, we've suddenly, we've lost so much of our pollination carriers. I mean, plants can't move to pollinate. You need a vector and, and bees and insects and bats and those things are the best thing. So if we lose our pollinators, suddenly we're going to lose a lot of our fruit, a lot of our vegetables, a lot of our crops you know, that we enjoy in that. Our diet will become so much more restricted. It won't wipe us out, but we'll have to change enormously. It'd make things more expensive. Oh, enormously more expensive uh, because uh, a fruit really only develops when there's a good pollinated seed inside. So really it's the seed that the fruit is growing around to be mm. able to, to nourish it. And if there, if there hasn't been a good pollination set for the seeds, then the fruit doesn't put a lot of energy into, into, into making fruit. Well I'm, imagine, well, I'm imagining this. So fruit and other crops, so vegetation gets wiped out that means more demand on meat yes. is going to be is, is going to be asked for yes but then there's only so much meat you can grind up for what eight billion people on this planet i know i know i know and as we were talking about the amount of resources that a kilogram of meat from or protein from meat require i mean look at the size of how much how much uh, how much area one cow you know uh, requires and how much you know food it requires and that I personally think that as we get more heavily populated, we're going to have to find new ways of, of creating protein at a very cheap way, in a very, in a, in a very um, uh, limited way. And I think insects are the way to go. I mean, you know, Australia doesn't eat a lot of insects, but you go to the Asian countries and you can get huge bowls of insects there. Um, I, I've, I've eaten chocolate-coated ants. Um, I've had um, mealworm pate. Uh, I've had grasshopper egg bread, things like that, you know. You can breed up huge amounts of protein in a relatively small area with insects and provide exactly the same nutrients that you have from a kilo of meat. Well, don't they eat snails in France? Yes. <laughs> Escargot. <laughs> they do. So we're going to need to find alternative ways of feeding this massive population. I heard somewhere recently that the carrying, natural carrying population for the earth is about 2 billion. And as you said, we're up to about 8, 8 billion. billion. And, you know, give another 50 years, who knows where we'll be. Well, I think it was in that David Attenborough Netflix documentary, it said in the 1970s we're in 2 billion. So that's only, yeah, 50 years, basically. Yep. Yep. And we've gone up 6 billion. So it's another 50 scary. years, are we going to go up another 6 billion? I know. It's scary. How do you food them? How do you house them? You know, and it's just it's just an enormous problem on that. So we are overpopulating this planet without a doubt. Have you heard of artificial meat? Yes. Where yes. I'm, I'm not talking a uh, vegetated turned no. into meat. I'm talking like actually science lab meat. Yep. Have where I'm going with this is have we ever looked into artificial pollination? They have in Japan. They created little drones mm -hmm. that would go up to the flower 
and and shake the flower to be able to get pollen and then go to another flower because you know it, it's pollen going from flower to flower that causes pollination mm. so i i read a story and i saw little kind of prototypes of small about about three or four times the size of a honeybee so they were they were quite small drones but the idea was that they would go from flower to flower and then they had some kind of ai so they were able to artificial intelligence so they're able to hone in a flower and then go to the next flower and things like that it's 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 a way that it could work you need an awful lot of drones awful lot of money awful lot of money uh to do it and then you have bees that do it naturally for free <laughs> <laughs> i know and they know exactly what they're doing they don't so, ask for much they don't ask for much than that so uh so yes the only thing i've heard is is these artificial drones in japan i've i've not heard it take off i've not heard it being you know the next big thing we don't need bees we just need drones whether it went anywhere i don't know how do bees know where to collect pollen from? So let's just say a flower's already been, just say a bee's already been to this flower and collected pollen from it and another bee comes along. How is another bee to know if it's already been pollinated or if there is pollen in it? How is it to know? Well, it doesn't know whether it's been pollinated or not. And I guess there's two ways of looking at the story. Remember, uh, with bees, you have solitary bees. Mm. In other words, this is a female by herself and you have social bees where you have a queen with thousands and thousands of workers. I think most people would have heard that with the social bee, take for example the honeybee, that the worker, a worker bee goes out, finds a, a food source, pollen and nectar, and comes back and does a waggle dance mm. inside the hive, and that tells the rest of the workers there's a really good source, you know, 300 metres, um, 45 degrees left of the of the sun. Uh, let's go out there and get it type of thing on that. And they can tell that just by wiggling their bum. They can tell that by wiggling their bum. And, and interest, interestingly, uh, insect heads, most people know that they've got two big compound eyes either, either side, yeah. but most people don't know that on the top of their head, they've got three little single reflex lenses, eyes called ocelli. And it's the ocelli in the top of the head that when they go out, they're able to immediately navigate by the sun. They know the angle that they come out and they know how long that they have been out from the hive and how far the sun's gonna go. Because not only do you have to go and find the, the source, you've got to go back to the hive. You've got to take the resource back to where you originated from. So how do you get back? So this is this navigation tool that these three little eyes on the top of the head provide them with. So as I said, um, with a social bee, one goes out and recruits a whole lot of people to kind of, or a whole lot of people, a whole lot of bees to come out and take that pollen source. If you're a solitary bee, you've only got just yourself. Again, they use navigation to get backwards and forwards. A lot of the social bees dig little holes in the ground, and so they have to find that hole to go back into when they bring out in there. But literally, um, a flower will accept pollination until it's run out of its own pollen. Wow. So, so remember, when a bee goes to a flower, it gets two rewards, nectar, carbohydrates, which fuel its fuel to give it energy to be able to fly, um, and also to feed its young, uh, and obviously pollen, which is the protein source that they want to be able to feed it there. So once the flower is out of protein and out of, out of sugars, out of carbohydrates, then, then, the, then the flower is no longer of interest. But, but the pollination has been done. So the job's been done by the flower that has lost all of its pollen and nectar because it's been transported to other ones than that. So as I said, um, they'll, they'll move on. And a lot of, it's interesting, a lot of flowers, um, dandelions for example, they'll open in the morning and then close about midday. They, they, they've done what they needed to do. They don't need, so they kind of uh, reserve what they've got. Other plants will only put nectar out at certain times of the day. So it's not as if there's a free for all 
of pollen and nectar. Flowers are very selective when they'll produce it out and, and how they'll produce their pollen and, that, and nectar. So yeah, the bees need to adapt. It's, as I said, not just going to a bar and, you know, <laughs> and ordering up the, the nectar and pollen and that. You've got to work hard to find it and then to be able to use it. Well, you talk about day and night there, that brings me to moths. They're mainly nocturnal, uh, nocturnal. Sorry. Yeah. Do they pollinate these flowers as well? They do a lot of pollination. Um, moths are our night pollinators. They're fantastic. In fact, there are certain plants, um, certain cactus plants, mm. bananas. Uh, they particularly like getting pollinated by by hawk moths. So there's a whole guild of pollinators that are night flying. Close too, apparently. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, moths are fantastic pollinators. And indeed, people often don't think of moths as, as being pollinators, but they think you go exactly like a bee to the flower to be able to get nectar. And while they're at the flower, they've got all hairy bodies. Mm. It's exactly the perfect case to be able to put pollen on the, on the hairs and transport it to another flower. Mm. So going back to the bee, mm. Is this why bees don't fly, as you said before, bees only fly like 500 meters or whatever, 300 meters, whatever it was. Do they only fly that far so they know how to get back home, judged by time, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that they, they'll they take the closest resources that's available to them. Mm. Honeybees can fly 20 kilometers. Uh, they generally forage within one kilometer, mm-hmm. but if the resources aren't there, they can actually go 20 kilometers. So, so bees will go as far as they need to go. However, the native bees, which are much smaller than a honeybee, I don't know whether you're aware, but the honeybee worker only lives for about six weeks. It, uh, so it comes out, it spends the first couple of weeks as being a nursemaid, um, feeding all the young inside, doesn't leave the nest. And then the next couple of weeks, its its job is to, uh, they fan to keep the temperature of the hives uh, uh, at the same temperature. So they're either buzzing in their wings without flying, they just got to vibrate to warm it up, or they're at the front of the hive ventilating it, trying to get air through to cool it down on that. So that's the first four weeks. So it's only the last two weeks that they actually go out and forage. And that's when they beat themselves to death. Mm. They just do thousands and thousands of kilometers and thousands and thousands of trips uh, out into there. So as I said, they've got a very short lifestyle. Um, now the now the, the solitary bee doesn't have a whole lot of workers to help it on that. So they have to go out by themselves on that. Again, the closer it is, the better uh, that you can have. But as I said, if they can, they'll go further. However, because they're a smaller size bee, they can't fly 20 kilometers, even 10 kilometers. They're generally just 500 meters to mm. maybe a kilometer, but that's a long way for an A to B to go. Are hum- outside of numbers, are humans having any impact on the bee? If that makes sense? Well, since 1950s, we have introduced pesticides mm. to be able to stop insects eating our crops and the pesticides have an enormous effect on bees. There's a particular group of pesticides now called the neonicotinoids or neonics is their common name. They were banned in Europe in 2014, but I can go down to a local hardware store and fill my shopping trolley with neonicotinoids and take them home and spray them in the environment left, right and center. So we we need to do more to be able to protect the environment in which the, the animals or bees are working on that. And pesticides is one of the big things that we need to try and reduce. What's happening to the bee? 
it gets the, the well the whole idea about a pesticide is it actually kills the insect and that usually it affects its neurons it's 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 psychological or, or the way that it thinks on that mm. it disrupts it and and so as i said imagine you've got a bee who's flown out to a uh, from a from a hive or from even a hole in the ground to a flower source it gets a whole lot of pesticides then suddenly it can't find its way back mm. it doesn't know how to get back and so the progeny back in the, either the hive or the hole in the ground dies because it's got lack of food. So it really disrupts the way that the bee can think and work, the neonicotinoids. And so that's why their, their um, pesticides cause all kinds of problems. So yeah, we, 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 we have changed the way we work with bees by these pesticides. But then again, we've introduced pesticides to be able to find enough food for, uh, for humans. Um, if we were to allow... Double-edged sword. <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. If we were to not use pesticides, we probably couldn't feed the, feed, feed the population. Mm. So it's, it's, it's getting the right balance, I think, is the thing. The nicotinoid. They just call it neonics. Has that got anything to do with, because it's got that nicotine? I'm not sure. It. It's got the name. I'm not sure. But the, the big difference with the neonicotinoid is that if you're using, for example, bagon or, or some kind of spray, you, you've got to actually physically hit the specimen, the, the fly or, or the bee, uh, with the chemical itself. These new chemicals, the neonics, you simply spray the plant. The plant absorbs the chemical and then it exudes the chemical uh, for whenever the insect comes along. So an insect comes along and chews the leaf, it gets some of the pesticide. But unfortunately, it's also exuded in the honey and the pollen. So that's when the bees get it. Are these these new insect killers we see now where they say if you just spray the surface of your door, you run have to spray the insect, but yeah. as soon as the insect tries to come in, it yeah. kills it. Is that's this... right. Uh, well, uh, that's more uh, that's more uh, what they call long-term. So they can be have a short-term pesticide or a mm. long-term pesticide. You often use those things, for example, for cockroaches mm. um, because cockroaches will hide during the day. So you're able to put like a barrier, a spray barrier down, mm. and then when the cockroaches come at it, night uh, then they'll pick up with their legs and be able to get it so so as I said you use those types of chemicals long-term ones uh, to try and get insects that aren't active when you're mighty seeing them in that are bees only uh, sexually active with the queen yes yes they are they are only sexually active with the queen with a honeybee when a virgin queen comes out she mates 150 mm. 100 times and then she can live and produce eggs for the next five, six years from those multiple matings when she's had it for the first time because she never leaves the nest again. Mm. So she has a little, I call it a sock. Uh, it's called a spermatheca, and that's where the sperm is held and it's fed. And believe it or not, the queen can decide when a sperm comes down and fertilizes an egg or wow. not. So if the queen decides she needs more female workers... That's something humans should look into. <laughs> So the, if, if, if there's a whole lot of workers which are, which are female, she, she, poly, she, she actually fertilizes the egg. But when males are required, the egg is unfertilized. A male bee is an unfertilized egg, and they occur only at certain times of the year. So she has the ability, A, to store the sperm for years, but decide which egg gets fertilized. And exactly the same thing happens with the solitary bees as well. They, they decide which egg is fertilized and which egg isn't in that. So, so yeah, it's fascinating. Does she also have the choice to not use it, like just uh, dispose of it? No, well, um, dispose of the sperm? Yeah. No, no, no. She it, It's stored in the spermatheca. Okay. I guess that if she was to dispose of it, then she would no longer be able to. She'd, she'd only produce males. 
Ah, okay, right. She wouldn't produce any females, mm. so there'd be an unbalanced population. So, so I don't, I've never heard of them um, um, uh, getting rid of it. As I said, they need it. Mm. But the fascinating thing is that they can store it mm. for so long, and then they can decide. Kind which, of gross too. <laughs> <laughs> which egg gets fertilized? Yeah. yeah, it's kind of gross. <laughs> it's cool though. Yeah. Um. Oh, the only reason I ask is you got those solitary bees. Yep. Um, they wouldn't be mating with the the queen. So would they just mate with the next uh, female bee they come across? Well, in a solitary bee, every bee's a queen. So if you define a queen mm. as being sexually reproductive, in other words, able to produce viable eggs, mm-hmm. then every solitary female is a queen because she's the only one who can produce viable eggs. Wow. So, But in, in a social colony, um, then you have, like for example, again, the honeybee, you have the queen and she has thousands, in fact, tens of thousands of workers who do all of the work. Mm. Um, they build the hive, they, they, they feed the young, um, they clean out the, the dead ones, they go out and they forage, whereas the poor old solitary bee has got to do all that in herself. Wow. So she's got to dig the nest, she's got to forage, she's got to build the brood cell, she's got to lay the egg uh, and then go off and do the whole thing herself. And that. so, um, so that's why there are less numbers of individuals produced by a solitary um, bee. She produces up to about 20 uh, different offspring in her lifetime, whereas with the European honeybee, she's laying something like 2,000 eggs a day. <laughs> Jeez. So it's quite different. That uh, solitary bee, how does how does it find its way back to its... I'm just imagining this little tiny, tiny hole, hole in yeah, the well, Again, those, those are silly in the eye and uh, and they navigate with the sun. So uh, it's a brilliant system uh, that they use that they're able to use time and the angle of the sun to know where they've come from to where they go and then how to get back. Because if I was to get a stick and walk outside right now and just put like a stick yeah. in the ground, create a hole, yes, and then Try walk, and find. then walk to say two k's away and walk back, I know. I'm not finding that. You're hole. not finding the stick. <laughs> I know, I know. It's amazing, isn't it? So, um, but if you've dug a, if you've dug a hole in the ground mm. and you've gone out and got a whole lot of resources, then unless you can go back to that hole in the ground and go underground and put it into a brood cell, you're wasting your time. So they had to find a way to be able to go out and to come back effectively and efficiently. Um, otherwise, you know, the, the whole thing would stop. Bees are just so fascinating. <laughs> they are. Well, actually, it's not just bees. Um, all insects have got these three ocelli. So, you know, in theory, all insects can also navigate. Mm. Uh, so, you know, Is it mainly uh, flying insects that do uh, it? Or? No, cockroaches and things like that have got have got a silly in that. Because um, I, I can't imagine an insect that travels more than a flying insect. Yeah, true, true, yeah. true, true. But um, you will still need, even if you're, say, for example, um, how can I say it? Um, uh, what's a non-flying insect? I'm thinking of termites, but they are mainly inside on that. Uh, uh, an ant? Uh, uh, an- Yep, I mean, well, ants are in social colonies, and oh, you know, okay. uh, ants, ants, ants often use a scent trail mm. rather than using. So, as one goes out, the they'll lay a little scent trail with their mm. abdomen, and other ones will kind of use it on that. But all insects have got a silly, and as I said, they all use them to be able to navigate in that. Mm. Well, we we're talking before about ants and the whole thing about how ants can get this fungal disease. Oh yeah, uh, what was the fungus that attached to it? Yeah, cordyceps. Cordyceps. This whole thing about a cordyceps shooting out of their brain, I know. and then two or I don't know how many ants will actually latch onto that one ant, take it away, so it can die, but then they'll kill themselves. Yes, 
Yes. Uh, it, but also, also the, the cordyceps before the ant dies, um, what, if you think about it, um, it's a fungus, right? Mm. So it needs to be able to get up to a high spot for its spores to be able to travel. So before the ant dies, it's able, this fungus is able to make, get into the brain of the ant and tell it to climb, to get higher yeah. and to be able to get up so that when, it, when the fruiting body comes out of the actual ant, it's able to disperse its spores as compared to being down lower on the plant. Fascinating. Every it seems that every insect is such just a worker. Just from the day it's born to the day it dies, it does nothing but work. That's true. They don't have downtime. <laughs> they uh, that's what they are. And and don't forget that um, um, a lot of insects live quite a, as an adult quite a short lifetime. People often put human aspirations on on adulthood as being the longest lived part of a life cycle. Whereas with insects, the adult, uh, as I said before, it's really just got two jobs to mate, reproduce and disperse. And so most of the growing eating stages is in the immature or the grubs and that. That's when they are like just a bag with a, with a pair of mandibles at the front and they just eat whatever they can on that. And they just get larger and larger on that. So the adult stage is quite short lived. So they've got to work hard to do what they need to do within the relatively short time that they're there. Well, humans put human aspirations on everything. That's we, true. We, we, we tend to compare uh, insects and animals to ourselves yep. quite quite a lot. A lot. And I, it, it's that's just us again, I think, putting ourselves on yeah. the top of the food sure, chain. Sure, sure. But it's also, it's also um, our way of trying to understand it. I mean, if we don't know what the life yeah, cycle of the... So of the insect is we then try and say, well, this is what I do. Is that what it's doing? Um, and then only through observations and long-term observations that we find, in fact, it's quite different uh, the way they do it. But if you don't have any understanding, you try and create a model yourself. Mm. And the best model is what we do. Mm. Now you're showing me a uh, quite an ensemble of butterflies before and the way their, their colors change through flight. Mm. Now, this is mainly due to predation. Correct. So I'm I'm wondering to myself, when, I shouldn't say when did they figure this sort of <laughs> trick out because it wasn't they didn't figure out. They, they didn't say to themselves, I'm just going to start painting my back a different color. <laughs> Was there a certain point through their evolution that this happened or did it just kind of... It happened gradually. Yeah. Um, the way that we believe this happens is that there's a population and I'll give you um, I'll give you a good example. Um, during the Industrial Revolution in England, there was a species of moth that had a light color. As the Industrial Revolution went on, there was more pollutants, more soot, more more coal, more 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 um, uh, more uh, more sawdust um, and 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 debris going down, and so the sides of the trees went from a light color to a dark color. If you're a light-colored moth sitting on this dark bark, you became immediately evident to the predators. They got eaten. So the moths that were slightly darker as a natural variation within the population were the ones that were least eaten, which meant that the darker ones were the ones that mated and reproduced more often 
And so they then produced more darker ones. So within that population, again, the darker ones are the, are the ones that survived. So this, it's this classic example of the Industrial Revolution where the trees were darkened by all of the pollutants that were out and the moth went from a light-coloured moth to a dark-coloured moth. And then once the Industrial Revolution finished and the pollutants then began to wash off, it went back from a dark moth to a white-coloured moth. Now, it wasn't a different species. It was just variation within the species and the darker ones were the ones that were less eaten or less predated upon. And then they were the ones that produced as compared to the light-coloured ones and that. So as I said, with the butterfly, the, the ones that had the bluer colours were the ones that would have survived predation more as compared to the ones that didn't. So in the case we're talking about here are the morpho butterflies from South America and they've got these brilliant blue refracted colours on the top of the surface but on the underneath of the wing uh, is a brown, a very dull brown. So if you're a bird and you're chasing this butterfly and every time it flaps its wings, when it closes its wings, you see brown, and then when it opens the wings, particularly in the sun, there's this blue flash, brown, blue, brown, blue, brown, blue, and it's a confusion technique because it's an oscillating color and so it confuses the bird. And then I also showed you that if the butterfly is able to make it into a tree, uh, and a butterflies always sit with their wings above their head. A bird always tries to bite the head of a butterfly. And so these butterflies on the underneath of the wing have large eye spots that are quite some distance from the head and, so, and much larger than the actual head. And so the bird will be attracted to bite the eye spot. So the bird will just get a mouthful of wing rather than actually um, attacking the head. And butterflies can fly with a fair amount of their wings, you know, lost on that. So down they go, lay eggs, and then all the confusion and all the camouflage has done the job. It's so crazy because it's willing to sacrifice a part of itself purely, look, not not for its own well-being, but for its... Uh, reproduction. Reproduction. That's purely, right. Purely. That's purely right. Purely That's for right. its own species uh, f- uh, forward, how do I say, forward progression. That's right. That's right. So they develop a whole lot of techniques to ensure that they get to the stage of being able to lay eggs. They live long enough to be able to lay eggs and that. And so otherwise, um, everything would be brown, for example. <laughs> yeah, choose a color, uh, you know, brown. There's no need to have anything but, but one color. Mm. Uh, and so you find different techniques. But as I said, it all comes down to what gets eaten and what doesn't get eaten. And the things that don't get eaten are the ones that breed and then they pass on these color variations and that. So. Uh, but as I said, with the case with the with the industrial revolution, it can change. It can revert back when conditions change, and that. So it's fascinating. But this is all intra-specific variation, not inter-specific variation. And what's the difference there? Inter-specific variation are the differences between two species. Mm-hmm. But intra-variation is the variation within it. So as I said, humans are one species but we all have lots of intra-specific variation. Mm -hmm. We all look different on that, but we're not different species. We're one species on that. So that's the difference between intra. Whereas if we go back in time and look at different species of humans, then that's inter-specific variation. It's so funny. I was saying to you before about how humans seem to be the species that have taken ourselves out of that evolutionary... uh, That's the word I'm trying to find here. uh, Evolutionary... Yeah, yeah, evolutionary aspect of things. We yeah. seem to have taken ourselves out of it. But I just had a thought. I don't really think we have either. 
because <laughs> and, and here's where I'm going with this. So the idea of evolutionary progression is uh uh as se- a sexual progression, like yep. being able to move forward with your own uh, seed and your species. Yep. To m- yep. We think we think we've taken ourselves out of it, but I really don't think we have. I I just had the thought that I really think that money mm. is what's keeping us within it. Yes, yes, that's true. One of the one of the differences of humans to most to all other animals is that we can change our environment at will. At will. Now that's what all other animals can't do. So as the environment changes, the animal either adapts or perishes or perishes. Because we can change our environment, you know, we we can we can put heaters on, you know, for example, in wintertime, we can, you know, have coolers in summertime and that, you know, we can keep ourselves at constant temperatures and that we can keep ourselves fed during winter, whereas a lot of insects, you know, they can't do that. So we change our environment to suit ourselves, which is our sustainability. In saying that, at what cost? So, Enormous. Yeah, that's, that's where I'm coming from. Like, yeah, we can change our... Um, adaptations to meet what we think is necessary to continue but then how does that affect the outside Uh because we can change our little world within this bubble but there's a much bigger bubble outside that bubble that if that big bubble decides to say hey this little bubble that you live in doesn't work for me anymore but inherent to a species is survival of the species and that's what we've done We, we inherently are survival of the species we're very very good at surviving as a species uh, if you're another animal and the habitat changes then you then you disappear you're, you're gone dinosaurs are a great example mm. um, you know they got wiped out on that but even if not under um, their own accord not under their own yet. accord exactly yeah mm. but as I said um, it's survival of the species and so we're very good at changing our environment to ensure the survival of the species at, it, at, at the cost of other things yeah, that's why I keep coming back. I sometimes I feel like at the cost of other things, those other things tend to be very big things. Yeah. Sure, sure. I, I mean, it comes back to the bee. Yeah, as I well. mean, we might bite ourselves in the butt, you know, from mm. regards to pesticides and wipe out pollinators. Yeah, and then you know, but uh, so I, I, I guess that you could look at it from a short term and long term mm. perspective. We 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 change our environment for short term survival. But whether that's the best thing for long-term survival, I guess, is something else to consider. Yeah, I think we look at the financial gain before we look at the economical gain. Yes, 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 yes. I think we are very driven by finances, aren't we? Um, extremely driven. Um, uh, I I can't think of any other animal that has got anything like that, um, that's mm. got that kind of drive you know, for financial um, success. Uh, financial stability um, is what we all, st- or many of us, strive for. In that, mm. that's why people went to war over a butterfly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell that story again? I'm really trying to remember what butterfly it was and why they went to war over it. <sighs> Can you tell that story again? Uh, well, I'm really trying I, to remember it now. I, 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 I'm not sure the story you're talking about, but I live on the Hurstbridge line, right? The Hurstbridge train line. Mm. And the um, the government decided to duplicate. It's a it's a double line to Greensboro, and then it's a single line all the way out to to Hurstbridge. And the government decided that they would duplicate the line all the way out to Hurstbridge. So they began the whole process, and lots of machinery came in on that. And then the Eltham copper butterfly was found to be breeding 
on either side of the road of, of the tracks between Green, between uh, Montmorency and Eltham. And because the Eltham coppers on the flora and fauna guarantee, we're not allowed to disturb it. So suddenly everything had to stop. And so <laughs> there's only going to be a single line between Montmorency and Eltham. So there'd be a double line uh, all the way to Montmorency and then a single line between Montmorency and Eltham and then a double line from Eltham all the way out to Hurstbridge and that. So the butterfly has stopped the train duplication line between two stations. <laughs> because they found it breeding in this site. Who said humans don't care about nature? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it's only because this is a thing called the flora and fauna guarantee that's in Victoria. Mm. I'm not sure whether other states have got it. It was the the, the Eltham copper was the first example. Going back to the mid 80s, uh, that out in Eltham there was a development uh, on a hill uh, that um, uh, that was going to be developed, and they found the Eltham copper there. The Eltham copper feeds on uh, it's called sweet berseria, berseria spinosis, and the thing that makes it very delicate. Uh, with its breeding is not only does it need the plant, but there's an ant as well called Natonchus. And the and during the day, the caterpillar of the butterfly lives in the ant in the ant colony, and then the ant carries the caterpillar up into the tree, up into the berseria tree, where it feeds. Now the reward for the ant is that as the butterfly's feeding, it gets a whole lot of carbohydrates and juices and it basically excretes it out the back. So it's, it's called honeydew. It's like, it's like a sugar drop. Mm. And the ants gather the sugar drop. So by herding and farming and having the caterpillars, they're able to feed their own young with, with these carbohydrates, these sugars there. So there's a benefit to both lots in that. But to be able to get the berseria and the ant together is a, is a hard combination. And that's why the species is quite rare. I think the butterfly story I was thinking of, it might have been the New Guinea one. Oh, well, sorry. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, there was the story there. Um, and that's the bird wing butterflies, mm. yeah, which, which, are, which, which are the most impressive and, and wonderful looking species in the world. And they occur primarily in New Guinea. Uh, and of course, when you have something that's beautiful and delicate and lovely, a lot of people want it. And so they were being over collected. Jewelry is um, a perfect example. Jewelry is a perfect example. So they were being over collected. I mean, there are there were cases. I remember there was a case where there was a bird, a flamingo, or something that had um, pink plumage, and this was going back to the 1800s. And people wanted it in the headdresses, and the bird was just about wiped out, Jesus, uh, because of these feathers that they wanted for that. But but the case in New, in New Guinea with the butterflies Leave was a lot a human. Of, uh, a lot of people want. <laughs> A lot of people wanted the, uh, these butterflies, so suddenly they became rare and endangered, and so there was a ban um, put on them there. But, but the New Guinea government thought, well, perhaps we could commercialise um, some of these butterflies if we breed them and sell them to these overseas um, people, then we've got a perfect situation. However, different species of butterflies, burning butterflies, are rarer and occur in quite low, uh, small localities as compared to the more common ones. So unfortunately, the tribes or the groups that had the low-cost butterflies would raid the tribes that had the high-cost butterflies, and there were wars and people were killed in trying to get the pupae of the high-priced butterfly, and so the government stopped um, all um, butterfly farming, uh, and there's now a complete ban on the sale, trade, collecting, swapping, anything with these butterflies and that. But just again, money. Money was what caused problems. 
What's the financial gain out of these butterflies? Is it really just because it's shiny? People like to pull a drawer out and say, I have it, I have one. We call them stamp collectors. Um, and I don't mean that in an un, un, unkind way, but um, a lot of people, and it's, it's, it's interesting, museums uh, like ours, we benefit from stamp collectors because they go out uh, and particularly it was, a, it was a gentleman's hobby, for example, in the, in the 8th, 17th and 18th century to have enormous butterfly collections. They had a whole lot of workers who went out and collected butterflies. And purely it was, not from a science point of view, but to show these wonderful animals, these beautiful butterflies and that, Paul draws out from that. They went out to a whole lot of areas that the butterfly is no longer there or, or the habitats changed so much. So we had these wonderful little snapshots, little postcards of the past from the stamp collector's butterflies who purely wanted to display them as, as an object of desire. Now, of course, you know, once those people passed on on that, the collections then were moved into museums and suddenly we had all this wonderful scientific information which we could never go back to be able to get, to get again. So um, we've got wonderful collections. There's the Reverend Bodley collection, uh, for example, and he sent a lot of people around the world to collect. Uh, and now we have his collection, which contains those burbling butterflies uh, that you had. But I'm sure that initially his idea was not to preserve these wonderful butterflies. It was to say, I have them. Uh, and so it's it's like shiny objects. And I'm trying to see the advantageous aspect of that. I mean, it just seems really like a selfish look at me yeah, type of thing yeah 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 uh, look what i've got um, yeah it was a hobby and there's still butterfly collecting is still a, a tremendous hobby in in you know probably not so much now but but it certainly was in the 1920s 30s 40s 50s 60s and, and we still have some butterfly collectors and they do a great job uh, of going out and what they do is that they catch a specimen they put a label on it and it becomes a marker for that time and space. So it becomes what they call a spatial temporal, where and when did we collect it? So if I have a butterfly collected in say the 60s and it's got the spatial temporal data, now I'm able to go back to that same spot and say, is that species still there? If it is still there, what have we done right? If it isn't there, what's changed? Mm. So unless we can go back to the past and know that the populations of insects are, we can't gauge the changes that have occurred. And so these amateur collections have got tremendous value in the future. Have we ever made an insect extinct by doing this sort of uh, insect poaching, I guess you could say? Well, the burrowing butterflies was one that came close, um, but it's extremely difficult. We have many mammals, you know, in Australia, yeah, we've definitely. lost about 39 mammals or something like mm. that. With insects, it's extremely hard to categorically say that it's extinct um, because they, they, they are so cryptic. Um, there have been many cases where you think it's extinct and all of a sudden it'll pop up uh, in different places and that. So with insects, it's extremely difficult to say that it's become extinct. Um, I, I showed you a lovely case of the Lord Howe Island stick insect, yeah. uh, which was a, um, uh, it's a large stick insect that's nocturnal, black, uh, no wings, uh, and it occurs just on, on Lord Howe Island. Um, anyway, in 1909, uh, a boat shipwrecked on it and rats got off the boat. Now, these great big, large, 
thick insects were just food for manna uh, and off the rats went and within about five to ten years they had completely decimated uh, the entire population of the of that's the a Lord. very short time it's a very short time um, so they wiped out the Lord Howe Island's thick insect so it was one of the cases where we say yes this is an extinct insect we can definitely say it's extinct and then about 10 years ago some people some climbers went to a little rocky outcrop near Lord Howe Island called Ball's Pyramid it literally, if you think of a very tall, thin pyramid, that's what it looks like. It's just jutting out of the sea. There's no beaches. You have to jump from the boat to get onto the place, and you need all the all the climbing gear to get onto it. Anyway, they climbed it, and near the top, on a scraggy bit of metal luca, they found some of these Lord Howe Island stick insects, and they, they brought some back, uh, and we have them at the zoo, and we have them here at the museum, and we are breeding them, uh, and, and you held you yeah, held yes, an insect that was considered for a hundred years to be I tried extinct. hiding up my sleeve actually. exactly <laughs> it did try to hide up in your sleeve now over the last five years about five million dollars i think has been spent to try and eradicate the rats uh, on lord howe island and from our populations at the zoo and the museum will repopulate but there was an insect that for a hundred years we were certain was was extinct is the plan to remove the rats and return them back to their environment on that Lord Howe Island? Yes, is that's that, correct. Is that yes, that's right. To get rid of the predator, the main mm. predator, which was introduced by a shipwreck. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, ice, islands are obviously isolated, so animals have to get there some way. In the, in the case of the rats, it was the, it was the boat uh, that they came off. Uh, so the idea is to remove the rats, and they've just about done it. Uh, so we would hopefully reintroduce it within a couple of years, hopefully. Because I know there's a lot of extinct animals. Like We've thought about using DNA from current animals to reintroduce past extinct animals. The mammoth is probably the perfect example of that. The thylacine? Yeah. I'm not really sure if I'm not really sure if that's ever happened or could happen with insects just because they reproduce at such a great rate. They do such a great rate on that. It's very difficult. In the cases what I have read, obviously you don't have a natural female to um, gestate the embryo, to, to be able to grow the embryo. There's there's a lot of difficulties in being able to bring an insect to bring any animal, not just an insect, but uh, to bring any animal back from the, from from extinction. Um, they're trying it. I think I'll be interested to see the proof in the pudding whether it can be done. Where I was going with that is, let's just say it is possible. And yeah, you can bring back the Tassie yeah. tiger, yeah, the yeah, dodo yeah. bird, the yeah. mammoth, yeah. whatever. Yeah. What does that then do to our uh, ecological system now? My question would be why they, they they ran their course and um in the tassie tiger case okay it was humans that that shot them out and, same with and mammoths same with mammoths and that mm. uh, although the mammoths might have been from well yeah, but from changes of environment yeah. and that so the so as i said when an ice age it's a bit of both i think yeah, i yeah, think yeah. humans hunted them a lot yes but it's also probably a, a, a ecosystem yes, thing as well the ecosystem yeah. changed as mm. well on that so uh so my question, I guess, would be, why do we want to bring them back? Um, you know, uh, ecology has changed. New species have filled in the habitats that they vacated. Mm. Um, so there's going to be increased competition from something that is no longer, you know, out in the out in the out in the population. That so I think there's a lot of ethical questions uh, to be answered mm. around um, bringing something back from the dead. Well, uh, these are all good questions. Well, yeah, I mean, you bring back uh, one thing, introduce it back into the wild. Then what happens to the new dominant species? Exactly. Does that thing get wiped out from exactly. the thing you're reintroducing? Yep. Yep. It's and 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 is something that has got used to not having that key predator 
suddenly going to get wiped out because there's a new key predator that's come into the area that you you didn't know about because it was extinct. Yeah, no, exactly. So there's a lot of questions to be to be answered there. Obviously, the first question is, can we do it? And then the second question is, should we do it? And I don't have the answer to either of those questions. <laughs> can we do it? Probably. Look, with the way science is going, I think we could, but probably not to the aspect that we think. Yeah. So the whole thing about the cloning of the mammoth, we're using elephant DNA. Is it then just going to be like an elephant hybrid? That's right. Is That's that right. Really, it's That's not right. really going to be a full woolly mammoth. It'll be very hard to get back to what it originally was in that. So, um, but as I said, my question would be then ecologically, um, what happens to the habitat and what happens to everything around, um, bringing back that an, an extinct insect that... Um, will be going into a habitat that's foreign to it mm. um, and then how would it cope and then what what will it displace? Well, the thing that interests me about past insects is the insect size that they used to be. Oh, yes, you, yes. You, you were telling me how dragonflies yes. used to go from a metre to two metres. That's right. Holy that's hell. Right. And, and the reason was, this is during the dinosaur age and the insects were a lot larger and it's purely insects haven't got lungs. Mm. So the way they breathe, this is a whole series of holes down the side of the body called tracheals. And these tracheoles, it's, it's like if you put fingers, you put your hand up with little fingers, these little tracheoles have got these little fingers that go in and then through, di and then all the, the blood, we call it hemolymph, flushes and washes over these little tracheoles and through diffusion mm. is how oxygen and carbon dioxide move. So it's a very slow um, uh, process. It's not a dynamic like when we breathe in and exhale and breathe in and exhale. We can't, the insects can't do that. So... Back in the dinosaur age, the oxygen content of the air was at about 30%. Mm. So there was a lot more oxygen in the air and diffusion worked a lot better, whereas nowadays it's about 21%. So there's a there's been a substantial decrease in the amount of oxygen in the air, mm. and so diffusion doesn't work as well, and there's a certain size at which... Uh, it just doesn't work. There's there's a there's a large stick insect that's around about the size of what's that about um, about almost so, a meter. Yeah, probably almost a meter. Almost yeah. a meter. Mm. Uh, it's and it's, it's in North Queensland. It's a wonderful thing. That's about as large as an insect can get. Um, possibly. That's that. still big. That's still big. It's big. It's very narrow. Mm. Um, so that's why it works rather than being a big fat thing. Mm. Uh, but um, but yes, um, diffusion simply doesn't work as well uh, at the lower oxygen content than as it did during the dinosaur age. So oxygen levels have dropped. Is that purely because of us, like with the way we're treating things, spewing things into the atmosphere? Is it because of volcanoes, the extinction I event? Think, or is it I just volcanoes? I think there's less volcanoes active at the moment than that. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, and is there going to be a point where the oxygen level just keeps dropping and dropping and dropping? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know the reasons why it's dropped. And, and I haven't read of anything where it's continuing to drop. Um, does that mean the further you go back in time, the bigger things were? Well, they well, certainly in the dinosaur race, they were, um, oh, from an insect yeah, point of view. Yeah, yeah, I, understand, yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely understand that. Um, but let's just say you go before the dinosaurs. Yeah, does yeah, that mean there were yeah. things that were bigger than them because the oxygen level was yeah, be higher? Yeah, I, yeah. Don't, I don't know. I don't know. But it's a fascinating thing to think about. It they've really got is. these large, really, really they've is. got these large dragonfly fossils, you know, and, and, and their the wingspans are enormous in that. Mm. So, uh, and you think, my goodness, <laughs> doesn't that make sense to you now? Why we thought dragons were real for so long? Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, there's an exhibition we have here at the moment um, um, called Fantastic Beasts, and it's all about Harry Potter and all about <laughs> dragons and things like that. 
and in almost every case, like for example, mermaids, mm. um, they were the dugongs um, or mantes that they call, you know, um, and these 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 animals sit upright in water and poke their heads up, and so you know, sailors from way back thought they were you know people. Mm. Uh, so there's often a little bit of um, of, of, of of real um, story behind the myth. Mm. I'll give you another good example of a myth. Um, have you ever heard that the daddy longlegs is the most dangerous and poisonous spider in the world? I've heard that, but I don't believe it. Even well, looking at that thing, I'm like, come on, man. Well, it's got to be the truth. The reason where it came from was the favorite food of the daddy longlegs is the redback spider. Right. And so people thought, well, hang on. If the redback spider. Red exactly. So I need, so the, hey, the daddy longlegs must need stronger venom. Than the redback spider because it's got a very dangerous venom in that. Mm. Uh, but in fact, it doesn't need a strong venom; it just uses ordinary venom uh, to be able to kill the redback. But that's where the myth came from because their favourite food is redbacks, and they then equated mm. uh, the strength of the venom uh, in redbacks to what it needed on that. So there's often a little bit of truth behind a myth. I mean, it's not true, obviously, um, uh, but it's a it's a wonderful myth. And they say then also that the daddy long legs. You're lucky the daddy long legs fangs are so small that it can't, can't penetrate. Skin, skin, I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh. But that actually, that myth was, no pun intended, that myth was busted on the show, Mythbusters. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. It's great stuff. So there was a little bit of truth behind it, which is just enough to be able to set it off in a way. And that's so, uh, so yeah, there's, there's fun things. There's so, fun things. So wait, is the dandy long legs venom actually not hazardous to us? No, not at all. Not at all. No, no. The, the reason why, uh, there's only two spiders in Australia, for example, that will, will cause us harm, the funnel web and the redback. Mm. And their venom is designed to kill vertebrates like lizards and snakes. Mm. So they needed a venom that would affect vertebrates. We're vertebrates, mm. so it affects us. Whereas the daddy long legs doesn't need venom to to kill a vertebrate. Um, it only attacks other invertebrates. So its venom is designed purely to be able to kill invertebrates. That's why it doesn't affect us. And it's only redbacks they eat. Uh, no, they'll eat they'll eat lots of moths and things like that. Oh, okay. But their favourite food, if they can, is a redback. They'll, they'll go and they've got these very long legs, as you know, the name daddy long legs, mm. and they're able to spindle it um, so they wrap it up in silk and the daddy because they're also their legs are so small and so narrow beg your pardon so narrow that the daddy that the redback can't actually bite it and, and inject any venom in that so these long legs uh, enable it to very adequately um, wrap up in silk a, a redback and then bite it without itself being bitten so is it vice versa is obviously dang long legs venomous for the redback but is the redback also venomous for the Oh, if the redback could could bite the um, daddy longs, it would most likely kill it. Mm. But because its body is a long way from the actual fangs and its legs are so narrow, it's extremely hard for the redback to bite and envenomate mm. a, a, daddy, a daddy long legs. I once, um, it's morbid in a micro spectral type of way. I once... There was a spider that caught a fly that oh, was right. in my house, yeah. and I could actually hear the fly like screaming, quote Buzzing. unquote. You could yeah, hear yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. as the thing is like biting it as it's wrapping it. <laughs> and I thought to myself, "There's like a murder case happening in the corner of my house right now, and I'm just sitting here watching it happen." <laughs> it could be just nature. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it is. It, it really is. But you look at it and you think, "Wow, I'm." Humans are probably the only thing that'll look at that. And feel an ethical, moral yes. tug, whereas the rest of nature would just go, oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Well, in nature, it's eat or be eaten. 
basically. That's what it is, eat or be eaten. So, um, so yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think, as you said, probably humans are the only ones that could look at that differently to how nature views it. Mm. But in saying that, I don't think we're the only emotional point of view creatures because it's, it has been shown that I'm not sure if insects can really show emotional contempt for their offspring and stuff like that but obviously other animals have shown it like birds show it yeah, uh, yeah, yeah monkeys yeah. show it uh dolphins show it yep, whales yep, show it yep. pretty much every i'm not too sure if insects show that well, kind of it's hard to say because insects have got a hard outer skeleton mm. they can't change their features mm. so there's no way it can be seen but there's a number of insects that are quite motherly or, or invertebrates mm. um scorpions for example mm. um are they an insect no, 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 no. As I said, uh, they're, they're not an insect. They're an arachnid. Okay. Uh, but um, when a scorpion lays eggs and the and the babies come out, they jump on the back mm. of the scorpion for several weeks. Now that allows the scorpion babies to get a little bit larger. The mother will make a kill, and they'll come down and feed on it. But instead of going out into the wild, extremely young age, they're able to mature a bit, get a bit larger, have a couple of molts, and they've got a better chance of surviving. Another, um, in, another another arachnid that does that are wolf spiders. Wolf spiders carry their babies um, on their back uh, as well. Mm. So as I said, it gives the spiderlings and the young um, scorpions a better chance of survival if they're just that little bit older, molted a few times, got a bit larger on that. So motherly, they, they have got motherly intentions there. There's even a cockroach up in North Queensland whose babies will actually... Um, feed in between the underneath they call the sternites and they can actually get food from underneath there so we'll call it, we've, we've called it the the cockroach marsupial pouch <laughs> <laughs> which is not real it's, it's the kangaroo version of the cockroaches exactly yeah <laughs> but then there are other insects also um that again try to give their young oh, the fly let's take the fly for example i don't know if you've ever squashed a fly and out of it comes a whole little little maggots so done that to a spider like okay squashed a spider and yep. see all the little, little things come out yeah. well there's quite a, there's a number of insects where the egg hatches inside the the mother insect and a young insect develops inside so she gives birth to live birth mm. rather than uh, an egg and again the whole thing is just to be that little bit more quite a few um i, I um uh, quite a few times uh, particularly um in food shops um uh, we'll get through councils. Um, uh, it's been fly blown, mm-hmm. and the question I'm always asked is, how old, how how long has it been there exposed? Mm. And one of the great problems is uh, that, as I said, flies can sh- can live uh, can lay live larvae. So in theory, the fly could be laying live larvae. You buy the slice of ham, for example, and you find make and you say, oh my goodness, and that. But mm. it's happened literally five minutes before. Well, the whole thing with the spiders and cockroaches carrying eggs that's one that's one thing but for me motherly love or intuition whatever yeah. you want to call it would be more so after it's born it's still taking care of it yes you know what i mean yes it's, it's still uh nourishing it it's still taking care of it until it's learned yeah the life's yeah. uh yeah. troubles i guess you that call doesn't it. that doesn't happen in insects mm. or or invertebrates uh that doesn't happen as i said the most they do is is give the spiderlings or scorpions a little bit of time and then best of luck yeah the best of luck and then and then once they're gone 
the mother could even eat the young spiderlings itself. So because they don't see it as theirs. Well, that happens in polar bears too. That happens in polar bears too. But then again, that's just straight down to where they live. Yep, exactly. Mm. Lack of food. Yeah. Um, you know, availability, and exactly the same with with the invertebrates and that. So, uh, so lack of food and that. I I do admire some cases. For example, a um a huntsman spider carries the big egg case underneath, mm. um, and in that time she doesn't feed. Um, so when they, you know, and the spiderlings... She doesn't feed. She doesn't feed. What, so, herself? No, exactly, exactly. So she becomes extremely, <laughs> she becomes extremely um, you know, hungry uh, and, and, and becomes quite narrow and, and loses a lot of fat and things. She just lives on a fat. Uh, but yeah, so as I said, there's a number of animals that do show in double inverted commas, mm. motherly instinct, uh, instincts, but it's purely to increase the survival of their offspring. And that's a very, very important thing in nature to pass on your genes. So if I can do everything it's possible to pass my genes on to the next generation, then that's what I'll do. And that's why I'll go back to honeybees and and social insects are such a special group of insects because the workers give up their reproductive rights to maintain the queen which is the one producing all of the eggs. Mm. Now, it's really interesting that from us, you'd think that this sounds great. You know, I've got 10,000 workers and they're all working here and the queen's producing there. They're the insect Catholic priests. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But if the queen dies, they've lost everything. So it's a real boom bust scenario with with social insects. Mm. And for that reason, only 3% of the insect world are social and the rest are solitary. So while it may seem to be a very successful lifestyle, it's very small. Because it's boom bust, it's either extremely successful or you lose everything. It's very small. And and to and to and to do that you have to give up your reproductive rights, which is a huge thing for an animal that wants to pass on its genes to be able to do that. It's fascinating. The whole thing where you mentioned how was it the huntsman yeah. that uh, doesn't yeah. eat doesn't eat and she relies on her fat stores. This brings me to uh, a spider diet. They mainly live off like rich carbohydrate yeah. foods like fruits and stuff like that. But if she's living so much off fat, it brings me back to an earlier conversation we were having of whether they could eat more of a higher fat diet. Not that they're carnivorous because no. carnivorous diets are mainly the ones that have higher fat. Yeah. But then you've got avocado and nuts yeah, yeah. and stuff like yeah, that. So yeah. I don't know how an insect could go off a higher fat diet, especially during that type of a... Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, don't forget that spiders are carnivorous. They so, are? Oh, yeah, yeah, they yeah. are. No, yeah, yeah. Are. No, so, you know, so she's she's eating other insects and moths and, and, and other spiders mm. and things like that. So they are carnivorous, so they have a high protein diet. So are they omnivores? I don't think they eat anything. Like they but eat fruits? And... I think they're carnivorous. I don't think that they eat fruit at all. Wow. Other than... Other than that would make sense with the fat stores. Yeah, yeah. Other than um, they may get some hydration, you know, from say rotting fruit, mm. and they may do that. But their whole mouth part, are their fangs, are designed purely for a putting in venom mm-hmm. and then pulling apart the tissue. Because what a spider does, because it's got fangs rather than jaws, it can't chew. Yeah, well, a lot of dinosaurs they think couldn't either. That's true. Mm. Yeah, that's true. So what happens is that the the spider macerates all the... Say, for example, it's a fly. They've just caught a fly. Uh, They envenomate it, and then they mash the whole thing up. But then they've got to virtually vomit their digestive juices up. Yuck. (laughs) 
onto this macerated fly, and then when it breaks it down, they literally suck it up like a like like a straw. So so now they're carnivorous rather than hey, um, look, omnivorous. I'm sure there are a lot of humans on Friday nights that have done that too. <laughs> <laughs> True, <laughs> but but look, uh, we tend to high we tend to hold ourselves at the highest regard. So what does that say about us? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I say, no comment. <laughs> Yeah, probably best. When it comes to human behavior, well, I'm just lost sometimes. <laughs> yeah, questionable, questionable. Yeah, very questionable. Spiders are, they're, they're more fascinating creatures because it only just hit me then that they are actually carnivorous. They are, they are. Yeah. The other fascinating thing about um, a lot of insects and spiders is the, is the way that they walk. Mm. They use hydraulics rather than muscles. So they've got muscles inside the actual thorax that mm-hmm. kind of have got the main but the actual ends of it is often just fluid and it's 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 using hydraulics that they kind of move in that so so they're fascinating creatures they really are so you know the next time you squash one think about it <laughs> <laughs> probably won't want to be thinking about good <laughs> have you ever um seen a camel spider not in person but a camel spider uh, i know what a camel spider is it's called a sulfugid um mm. and and they are they're an arachnid uh, they're like a like a scorpion. Are they still considered an insect? No, not they're at all. Not. No, no, no. It's a sulfugid, uh, which is not an insect. It's mm. it's, it's, it's arachnid. It's got eight legs, mm. uh, and and it's got pincer-like mouth parts and that. So no, so no. Campbell spiders are uh, are spiders, or actually they're not spiders. They're called sulfugids, uh, but they but they're closely related to spiders. Where does the line draw between that and arachnid insect line? Well, they are all arachnids. Mm. And then uh, it's it's a bit, how can I say this? It's a bit like insects. You have dragonflies, you have bees. Mm. Uh, you have a whole range and you've got you know, grasshoppers and a whole lot of things like that. It's the same within the arachnids. Um, there are harvestmen. Mm-hmm. There are daddy long leg spiders. You know, there are different types of groups. So when we have what's called a phylogeny or a tree of life, mm-hmm. then you have what we like talking about an original progenitor. So like distant cousins. Distant cousins, exactly. Mm. And then as evolution went on, then distant cousins. So the spiders were here, the harvestmen were here. It's kind of like birds and dinosaurs. and Yeah, exactly. Apileones came out, you know, and things like that. So Mm. they're all distant cousins and that, and they're all termed under that, but there are a number of characteristics that separate them. Mm. Going back to the bee, you told a story to me earlier about some mite that uh, oh, is coming yes. within to Australia. Yes, this is the Varroa mite. Mm. The Varroa mite is decimating bee populations throughout the world. Mm. Um, it originally uh, began, it's a parasite. It's a small mite that sucks the hemolymph or blood uh, from the bee. Can this thing do this to us as well, or is it purely bees? It's purely bees. Okay. It's purely bees. Um, there are ticks that will attack us and other mites that will attack us, like, mm. like chickens and things like that, but mm. this thing won't attack us. But it was it occurred on a bee uh, called the Asian bee, Apis serrana. Mm-hmm. And Apis serrana, because it grew up and developed and evolved with, with Varroa, it knew how to scrape it off off the sides of its body. So um, the number of Varroa that would occur on a, on a bee was quite low and it never got a chance to be able to put in these um, bacteria and viral problems and that. However, I don't know how long ago... Um, 50 years ago, I'm not exactly quite sure of the time frame, but it, it did a host jump. So it went from the Asian bee to the European honeybee, so from Apis serrana to Apis modifera. Mm. And when when parasites do a host jump, the new host doesn't know how to handle it, doesn't know what to do, 
and just lets it sit there. So the honeybee just lets it sit there and it just sucks all the hemal lymph and transfers these, these problems into it like wing deformed virus. So a bee that has had varroa um, in, in its larval pupil stage will develop as an adult without wings. Whoa. And so what's the use of a worker bee that hasn't got wings? And can't fly anywhere. Can't fly. So as, the, as a hive gets more varroa mite, and more bees get affected by it, the hive dies. So it's called colony collapse disorder. And the whole thing just shuts down because there's not enough worker force to keep the whole hive going. Now, throughout Europe and America, they've lost about half of their honeybee uh, populations, which is an enormous amount of pollination reserves that they've lost. Cost of honey must be skyrocketing. Oh, it's skyrocketing. The the fortunate thing is that if in in a managed hive, there are two types of hives. There's managed and feral. Mm -hmm. So a feral hive is where a colony of bees has gone from, say, a managed hive, but it hasn't been captured and it's gone off into a hollow in a tree. Mm. And that's called a feral hive. And they're extremely difficult to manage. And this is the great problem with Varroa mite in Australia. So in a managed hive, you can put in mitocides. We can put in pesticides that are called mitocides and they'll treat um, they'll treat the Varroa and that. So they'll reduce the number of Varroa and keep it in check. And so they, the hives don't have a lot of problems. However, you don't have that. Nobody's looking after a feral hive and that. So the Varroa mite came in we presume on a ship in the port of Newcastle and we presume that it was a feral hive that was on the side of some kind of container. So imagine you've got a a feral beehive on the side of a container that's got varroa mite in it and then it was picked up and put onto the mainland and then the bees from that feral hive which had varroa mites on them went up to the local flowers and they met bees local bees from managed hives that were nearby or feral hives mm. and then at the flowers the mite moved across from the one that came in from Port of Newcastle into their own hives and that and so it began to spread but it it, it often takes five to six years before you realise that an invasive has arrived because they're not immediately um, in, your, in your eye and that and during that time honeybee hives as they do to follow where the honey flows were transported up to Port Macquarie, um, out to Narrabri. They were set, I mean, they didn't know that there was varroa there. But so from the original infestation site, honeybee hives were moved around New South Wales and they contract them. They, they're now finding where the varroa are. So they contract and said, yes, um, you know, five years ago, we moved that hive from, from Newcastle down to you know, Narrabri or something like that. So the trouble is that when it's so, so what's happening is that they put an exclusion zone around where they think the varroa is and they're killing every beehive is wiping it out and that's the best thing to do so you can you can stop the, the host unfortunately they've got into the feral hives oh. and there's no one managing the feral hives so they're putting out chemicals something like fibronol mm. and they're hoping that the feral hives uh, the bees are going down and feeding on the on the on the fibronol and taking it back into the hives and then killing the feral hives so so feral hives will be the greatest problem to stop the varroa mite, but it has caused dev- devastation um, in Europe and America and the honeybee hives. And as I mentioned earlier, we get something like sixteen billion, you know, dollars worth of pollination from the honeybees. Mm. Imagine if we got half of that. And 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 I also said mentioned something like the almond crop mm-hmm. um, on the Murray. They require seven billion bees for a three-week period to get almost a hundred percent pollination of the almonds. 
and when they get near 100%, the crop's worth having. If it's not near 100%, the crop is not is not worth harvesting on that. So, uh, and they bring bees from around Australia. Now, the last time we had it, there was a complete ban of any bee, honeybee hives coming into New South Wales. Mm. And so the crop, you know, um, didn't do as well by far because they couldn't bring bees from all around Australia into New South Wales for this three-week period and that. So it's going to have a lot of knock-on effects. Because honeybees, they're not actually uh, native to Australia, are they? No, no, they're not. They were brought in, as the name suggests, from, from Europe, mm. uh, European honeybee, or they're called the Western honeybee and that. There are seven species of honeybees. We have none native uh, in Australia. It's, it's called The genus is called Apis. Uh, so they had to bring them into Australia yeah, in 1822 on the ship called the Isabella <laughs> was the name of the ship that brought them in. <laughs> Gee, what, what is the native bee to, to Australia? Or bees, uh, what are the native bees to Australia? Well, we have 1,600, um, 1,660 native bees in Australia. Maybe don't name them all. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. There's about 25,000 species of native bees in the world. Mm -hmm. So we have, you know, I mean, with the undescribed species, we maybe have 2,000. So, you know, we've got roughly about 10% of the fauna, but we have an extremely unique native bee fauna because Australia was isolated uh, at least 100 million years ago when the bees were diversifying um, they basically developed in Australia in isolation from other other aspects and the co-evolution often favours so the things things develop when they are in match and so about 60 million years ago the Myrtaceae or the gum trees radiated or expanded enormously mm. and that's what you know if you go out to anywhere in australia you'll see gum trees um, all over the place now the gum tree had the flower has got a very shallow cup it's a broad shallow cup which suits bees there are two types there are two groups of bees short tongue bees and long tongue bees short tongue bees need a shallow cup whereas the long tongue bees go for the more deep tubular flowers and because australia had this enormous amount of shallow cup flowers from eucalypts then australia they radiated they speciated the short tongue bees enormously in australia which hadn't happened overseas mm. so australia is the only continent that's got a dominance of the short tongue bees which is due to the coevolution of the uh, of the eucalypt flowers and i did read recently <clears throat> that they believe the radiation of the eucalypt and the shallow cup was more to do with parrots Oh, wow. Yeah, so parrots were with the driving force behind eucalypts rather than bees, uh, just radiating and going gazump, you know, in, in Australia and that. But the short-tongued bees found it marvellous, mm. and so they then speciated. So we have five families of bees, um, and the short-tongued bees are in the, what they call the caletids and the helictids, and more than half of Australian bees are short-tongued bees. That doesn't occur anywhere else in the world. I've heard there's a lot of honey differences. So you got like manuka honey. Yep. How how does all this differentiate? It's just the it's just the type of flower that it's come from. Hmm. So it's the nectar that the bees have have collected. So the manuka honey is I think leptospermum, for example. So instead of having a wide range of flowers hmm. that the bees collecting and mixing all these different types of nectars, it's gone to a particular genus or particular floral type like 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 as i said leptospermum so if you can have a large uh, amount of flowering of a single genus of plant then you can specialize and call your honey mm. a particular type there's a recent kunzia is another one there's one that i saw advertised recently kunzia which mm. is another type of flower mm. and it's called kunzia honey and that so um, 
they, they taste a bit different. Mm. Um, Manuka honey is supposed to have some more medicinal um, you know, mm. value and things like that. I don't know the full detail of it, but it's literally when you can have your bees um, taking nectar from one group of plants. I think uh, some of the honey differences are the free radicals are meant to be more uh, stable as well. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And look, you know, um, honey is a wonderful thing. It was used in the in World War One as an antiseptic. Vikings you know, loved it. And Vikings loved it in that. So <laughs> it's got a whole lot of bacterial. I mean, mm. honey doesn't go off. Yeah, I know. If if it's uh, stored right, it yep. never goes off. It doesn't goes off because because what the bees have put into it. So mm. they they add, you know. So um, it's interesting when when a bee collects nectar. It's what we add to it that makes it go off, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but when a bee collects nectar, it's got far too much water in it. Uh, it's got a, nectar. It's got a high water content, mm. and so the bee has to get rid of that water content down to about thirty percent of what is collected. And they and they do a thing called ballooning. So you look it up on the web. Um, a bee will collect a crop. The the, uh, the crop is the first part of the stomach, so it puts all the nectar in the in, in the stomach, and then it will go and sit on a branch or a leaf or something like that, and it will bring up, it will vomit up the the nectar as a bubble. Mm. Uh, sorry, I'd say ballooning. I say bubbling. And so um, what happened there then is that it, it the water naturally evaporates. So there were two ways that you could do it. The bee could somehow chemically remove the water, which would cost a lot of energy, cost a lot of um, time and energy to do that, or it can simply bring it back up in the mouth parts and expose it to the sun and it will naturally evaporate. So they do this thing called, uh, as I said, bubbling, where they mm. bring up like they're blowing a, a, a bubble gum um, mm. thing, and it's this nectar, and then they bring it back and they brew it backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards and that. And so, as I said, it's a wonderful thing. So, so, so honey is dehydrated nectar. Jeez. There's so much fascinating things about insects. Look, I think uh, we'll leave it there and we'll wrap it up. Look, Dr. Ken Walker, thank, thank you, you so much for coming on the podcast. <laughs> You're, in terms of insects, your mind is absolutely crazy. <laughs> and I, I could pick at it all day. Thank Look, you. Um, do you have any social media you'd like to plug where people can find you? Or? No, no. Um, I work at the museum um, and and that's got enough social media. Um, I, think that it's, um, I think it's lovely to have people realise that there's a lot more behind the exhibitions mm. that people come in to see, mm. uh, and that's the that's the big thing I'd like to say. We we do research here. We have large collections, uh, and, and that's the part that most people don't realise about museums. So it, it's alive, and it's what's kept me going for forty years. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Ken Walker, thank you so much. Thank you, Dale. Much appreciated.